Hi, good afternoon. If you're here today, you're here for our Should I Pay Temporary Disability webinar. My name is Greg Lois. Uh, standing to my right, your left is Tashia Rizul, and to her right, your far left, Rachel Aronoff. Uh, Tashia is one of my partners here in the New York Workers' Compensation Practice, and Rachel is one of our trial attorneys. Uh, we're here today to help you answer questions that you get from your location, your insureds, and those locations are asking you things like, do we have to pay temp? How much do we have to pay temp? And how can we stop paying temporary disability? Uh, those are what we're going to hopefully have all of our attendees be able to answer when you leave this webinar today. Uh, this is part of our overall New York Workers' Compensation webinar series. It's always the third Monday of the month. There are now two sessions, one at noon, one at 3 o'clock. Uh, and if you're ever wondering what the new topics are going to be, they are absolutely on the events page of our website. Um, this is just a small part of the overall sort of educational outreach that we do. Uh, we also do handbooks. Uh, there are literally thousands of articles on our Lois LLC mm -hmm. website going back for 10 years. Uh, we do a monthly newsletter in which we summarize all of the articles we write every month, and we're averaging 10 to 15 new articles on New York and New Jersey workers' comp. And, of course, we do these monthly webinars that we invite everyone to attend. Uh, today we're going to talk about indemnity benefits, temporary total disability, temporary partial disability. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, how we end those benefits as well, because that's typically what we're doing as your defense attorneys. Uh, totally live. So if we mess up today, uh, <laughs> please understand this. When we expect it, right. That's going to happen. We have to happen. Uh, feel free to please ask us questions as we go. We've discovered that as we get to the end of the, uh, the webinar, hey, where are all the questions? And people don't start typing in their question until the thing is like almost over and that last uh, screen comes up with questions. Uh, please start asking questions right in, as we go along. We can see them. I've got a computer right here popping them up. Um, also, from your control panel at your computer, you should also be able to access the handouts. And there are two handouts. There's the one that we email to everybody, which is just the general handout. And there's also one just on EDI because uh, some of our attendees uh, are dealing with EDI and want to know sort of those rules. We have a very lengthy 13-page sort of summary of the EDI requirements. And that is in the handouts. You can download them now. Uh, okay, without further ado, let's talk about workers' comp benefits. Rachel, take us away. Well, there are four types of benefits. So we have medical benefits. We have temporary disability benefits. We have permanent benefits, which are subdivided under loss of wage earning capacity and schedule loss of use capacity, uh, schedule loss of use. And there's also the death benefits. So these are the four types of benefits that we have. Okay. And today we're only talking about the temporary disability benefits and the permanent disability benefits will be covered sometime later on, I believe in November yep. of mm -hmm. this year. Yep, so that's going to be its own topic. That's a big enough topic to really take up its own day. Okay. So we are talking about money benefits today, but it's only going to be temporary disability benefits. Um, all right, let's talk about that. Uh, when do we pay them? <laughs> okay, so they're payable only in compensable claims. So if um, the claim is... Uh, being accepted by the carrier or formally established by the board, that's what we call a compensable claim. Even though the claim is uh, compensable, though, if there's seven or less days of lost time, the claimant's not entitled to benefits for this period. In other words, there's a waiting period. So in order for the claimant to receive benefits during this, for this first seven uh, days after the injury, or, I'm sorry, after the lost time, there must be 14 days total of lost time. So on the 15th day, that's when the benefits would be issued to the claimant, and he or she would actually receive benefits for those first seven days. And do they have to be sequential, like all in a row? 
Absolutely not. So it can be three days this week, he can return to work, and then it can be another three days as long as it adds up to 14 days. That's what will trigger uh, him or her receiving benefits. Okay. And um, so there's a, so if the claim is not compensable, obviously the claimant is not entitled to uh, temporary disability benefits. So we do want to point out something with the denied cases, though, um, in order to prevent the carriers from being on the hook for uh, temporary benefits to the claimant. So there's this thing called 1810 rule that's being thrown about. It's, it's our lingo. And what it means is that if the, the carrier is going to deny a claim, it must be done within 18 days of lost time. So before or on the 18th day that the claimant started losing time, or it has to be done within 10 days of the carrier becoming knowledgeable of the lost time or the injury. All right, and this came from the payer compliance memo and has really been a big problem for us because under the statute, we have 30 days to deny a case. Right. Uh, but uh, the board is saying, no, uh, if you're looking into a case, you're investigating it, you don't even have medical records from the claimant, uh, we're going to ask you to start paying uh, uh, temporary disability benefits at that minimum rate, which I think you're going to talk about in a yeah. second, uh, until you sort of make that determination or until medical gets submitted to the board. Wow. All right. Let's talk a little bit about temporary disability benefits just in general. Can you talk us through how it's calculated and what it's based on? Sure. The general you know, understanding is that you have a 52-week 52 52 year, um, and what your general earnings are during that year are then divided by that 52-week period, and then you take, you know, two-thirds of that amount, which is, you know, used to account for tax purposes, um, and that becomes your average weekly wage. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, you know, you, that, that becomes a temporary disability period, uh, benefit, the two-thirds of that, which is 100%. And then you also have the minimums and the maximums that are statutorily regulated. All right, let's go through the step-by-step. Step. So you're talking about average weekly wage as being sort of the, the foundation or the cornerstone of how we calculate that compensation benefit. Yes, absolutely. That's the most important part because all of your future benefits in this claim, in the life of that claim, will be based on the average weekly wage. So all the you know, calculations stemming from that will be based on that. So it's important to know that you know, the board will use uh, various ways to calculate it. They'll either use a 200 multiple or a 260 multiple in order to get that average weekly wage. And basically what that means is the actual number of days worked by that claimant. So the closer we get to 260 days of a work year, basically, the more accurate the average weekly wage will be reflected. For some employees who work less than that, um, you know, the board will still try to even things out and use the 260 multiple. However, we try, you know, in our practice, we tell, you know, use the, you know, the straight division method, which is, you know, the actual earnings divided by 52 right. weeks. So then we, we, we use the actual earnings of the employee. We should always be calculating it using straight division. Right. We try to. Yes. Sure. Does it always work out? Yeah. We'll wait until the claimants or the claimant's attorney make their arguments about the multiple, but we're never offering up the calculation using the multiple because... It almost always makes the average weekly wage higher, which, of course, will influence the amount that you're paying out for temporary disability benefits. So straight division is the way to go. That's what we walk in the court with, saying this is what it should be. And um, we're usually successful with that. Once in a while, we get, uh, you know, we have to end up doing it using the multiple, but straight division is what we recommend. 
Okay. We also have to watch out for seasonal employees and part-time employees because their wages won't be calculated at the same rate. So we'll try to use their actual wages, which is, you know, as close to however many months or weeks they worked. Um, for full-time employees, however, we have to use similar workers if the claimant worked for less than 52 weeks. Um, in that case, it gets a little dicey at times because, you know, uh, who's a similar worker? And we'd like to say that these are people who generally work in the same industry, you know, in the same position, and important, most importantly, in the same geographical location. Because, as we know, wages vary based on state to state. Even within the state, New York City wages versus upstate New York wages will be different. Right. Sure. And it's also good to note that even when there's not 52 weeks of wages for the actual claimant, the judges would direct the carrier to produce the wages for the time actually worked. And they usually do this to compare it to the calculation that's being made because, as you mentioned, using the 260 multiple, if we were to do that for a similar worker, it might be significantly higher than what is. the claimant actually worked yeah. for the six months that he worked, right? We're typically fighting that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take the easiest slide that there is, which is rates. The rates change every July 1st. They've gone up every year since they uh, changed the statute in 2007. The current rate is $864.32. If you're wondering where does this rate come from, uh, it's based on the state average weekly wage. It's calculated. It's on the board's website. It seems like this nowadays, um, you know, five or six years ago, they were announcing the average what the new uh, max rate was going to be, you know, three, four months before July. Now, I think they just announced it a couple of weeks uh, did, before. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. But we, uh, you know, that's the new rate. Uh, the minimum rate is still $150 right. a week. Mm -hmm. And also a reminder, the minimum rate is based on the actual date of loss. Correct. So there's yeah, no increase point. as the case goes along. Good. Right. right. Yes. Should have said that. I thought I had the easiest slide. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, who wants to talk about uh, the terms of art? I can take it. Okay. You know, we have total disability, which is, you know, 100%. Doctor says you're completely, you know, totally disabled, temporarily, but totally disabled. And then under that, we have mild, moderate, and marked, which is 25% for mild, 50% for moderate, and 75% for marked. At times, you know, we go and there's you hear terms like moderate to marked or mild to moderate, which is basically, you know, the shorthand way of saying the difference between the two numbers. Right. And those are usually, so we generally see the doctors using just the, the mild, moderate, marked, or total. Mm -hmm. But the in-betweens are sometimes, once in a while you'll see a doctor saying a 66.6 degree disability or when the parties are compromising, or sometimes even after the cases are litigated, the law judges would find sure. something in between, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But um, why is this important? It's because the percentage of uh, disability, the degree of disability, that translates into the amount of money that the claimant will receive as temporary disability benefits, right? So the medicals do control the amount of money that the claimant will receive. Okay, and before we go any further, when we're talking about calculating those benefits, I just want to remind everyone, if you have questions, please be typing them in now. We are uh, a little bit more than halfway through our slides, so now it's time to be starting to think about your questions. Um, let's talk about calculating the benefit, and just, I guess, another thing to talk about is this is a New York-specific thing. The word mild and moderate and market, they're not found anywhere in the statute. They're not found in the regulations. These are just sort of terms of art that have developed over many years, and they're sort of rules of thumb. But there's absolutely nowhere you're going to find in the statute that says a market is worth 75% disability. That's just something that's grown up over time. 
Um, this is how I calculate benefits uh, when I'm doing it. Uh, just how I, I, it always comes out to the right number, average weekly wage times whatever the percentage of disability divided by uh, 150. It always worked out the exact right rate. That's my quick way of doing it. Uh, on, underneath it, we put or some other sort of methods. All right, uh, let's talk about what we really care about. Okay, so we've done all the table setting. Cutting them off. Cutting them off. All right. Does she <laughs> take us away? Yes. Yes. Right. Okay. So the goal should always be to cut off those temporary disability benefits, right? Yes. And yes. how can we do that? Yes. Force them back to work. <laughs> Get back to work. Your injury has healed. It's resolved. It's time to go back. Stop yes. collecting. Right. Yeah, I think we've so. all done this enough that we're getting kind of jaded. And <laughs> we've lost all semblance of sympathy for, you know, the person who's been home for three years with a back sprain. Right. Just, you know, not operated, just annoys us. And so let's talk about how we get them back to work. What do we do? Okay, so we, we can push them towards MMI and then permanency, but that's something we'll talk about in a different webinar. Right. But with respect to cutting off the temporary total disability benefits, Raise labor market attachment, you know, challenge their attachment to the labor market. Now, in order for us to do this, though, we need medical evidence. As I mentioned earlier, degree of disability, it's controlled by medical evidence. The claimant remaining out of work, it's controlled by medical evidence. And they're picking their own doctors. Absolutely, and the doctors know what exactly to write in the reports to keep them out of work, right? And yeah. the claimants also know what to tell the doctors so the doctors can keep them out of work. What do we do? Get an IME. We always have to challenge the medical records that the claimants are producing. Now, in order to challenge uh, labor, uh, their attachment to labor market, though, there must be a less than total disability. Right. Right. So anything less. Anything less. So 99, 99 and below. Yes, 99 and below. We are in there challenging labor market attachments. And so once in a while, you'll get a claimant's attorney, uh, I'm sorry, a claimant's uh, doctor finding the claim for less than total disability. If that's the case, that's sufficient to raise labor market attachment. Right. In many other cases, though, they're going on for a couple of years, and their doctor is still finding them at a total disability. Yep. So what do we do? Get the IME. Hopefully the IME is going to find zero disability or even or less. anything less, yeah. anything less. And we'll have to litigate the issue if that's the case. So just to be clear, in order for us to be able to raise labor market attachment, the claimant's own doctor must be placing him or her at a less than total disability, or there must be a finding by the law judge, which is after depositions, that the claimant has a less than total disability. But we do know, though, if their doctor is still placing them at a total, and we have an IME finding less than uh, total disability, start the process of raising yep. labor market attachment, yeah, and, right? And I think we're almost skipping over the easiest one, which is, well, the easiest one is their doctor says, you're at maximum medical improvement. Great. Temp stops. Right. Okay. That's true. Mm -hmm. The second one is, well, their own doctor puts them at something less than total, and we can offer light duty. Yes. I mean, this is the number one thing Absolutely. that employers can really do to help themselves. Mm -hmm. Have some kind of light duty available. I mean, sometimes it's just not available. A warehouse distribution center or something, you're going to do a truck driving job, mm -hmm. and you can't do that partially disabled. I get that. Uh, but you if we can offer to, a light duty position, yeah. You just have to be mindful of the restrictions that are being placed. Right. A light duty, you know, for one may not be the same as for another, depending on their restrictions. Yeah, so we'll have to see what the doctors are saying about their restrictions. Exactly. And so we're kind of skipping over that whole topic of offering that light duty job. Uh, it's very well covered, I think, in the handout with even model template letters yeah. to send to the claimant and say, come on back, I got something that worked for you. Um, okay, so then the other times we can cut it off is they admit they're retired. 
right? They come back and go, hey, you can come back to work. And they go, no, I retired. I'm done. I'm, I'm out. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're going to talk about is the defense that we can actually make, which is the attachment defense. Right. Okay. But, you know, once in a while, the claimant decides to go back to work and yeah, okay. surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's very right. right. Yeah, that's a unicorn. If, if only you know that happened more often. Yeah. I think this really just applies for people who are making a significant amount of money. Sure. It's right. more beneficial for them to return to work rather than, you know, stay home. Right, and you get yes. that gets to the politics of the compensation rate. You know, if you make less than about fifty thousand dollars a year, you're better sitting home collecting workers' yes. comp because your marginal tax rate is going to be higher than thirty mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. Yeah. And so you get to this place where you know not a lot of doctors and lawyers and college professors and high income earners that are you know sort of sitting home collecting comp. It's right. not worth it to them. So that's mm-hmm. an excellent point, Rachel. All right, let's talk about our steps for challenging attachment. Okay, so first we should start the carrier should start sending out the. Um, C-258 forms as soon as there is a light duty Which we've all seen, right? Everyone has seen these things. Mm -hmm. These are not an official form, meaning that it's not required, but they do have a model one on the board website. Right. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we like to tell clients, like, hey, this isn't like a specific thing, like a, a, you know, a PH 16.2, you have to use it. You Mm -hmm. can really use any form you want, but that's a model Yeah, it's a guide, and it has all of the information that they should be providing to the carrier to show that they're actually looking for a job and they're remaining attached to the labor market. Mm-hmm. So after the carrier sends these out, we usually recommend that they're sent out about every two weeks or so. We want to be aggressive every week. Sure. Um, but guess what happens? They never return them. Never return them. Because, again, they're not required. It's not a, specific, a board required form. Exactly. So what do we do next? We'll just have to file an RFA2 to get things going. The RFA2 is going to raise labor market attachment. The board's going to schedule the matter for a hearing. We walk in there. We tell the judge why we're raising labor market attachment and request that the claimant be directed to provide a proofs of job search and also the opportunity to cross-examine him or her. And we do know, so when the hearing is on that very first time for labor market attachment, that's when the claimant usually shows up with like sheets and sheets of paper for right, the job. That they created on the, on the drive to the right. courthouse. <laughs> right, napkins. Right, napkins. <laughs> yep. Yes. Exactly. So at that very first hearing, you want to collect all of that information mm-hmm. and you can actually subpoena those employers to see if the claimant's even uh, applied for those jobs, right? right? And some of our clients are using vendors that are doing it with letters. Yes. Same thing. Mm-hmm. And we'll have sufficient time between the first hearing and when we have to come back for the claimant's testimony so we get the subpoenaed results back. And in many times, we've done this so many times here at the... the no board. record of application. Nothing. Okay. So we'll use it against them at the, um, the hearing where we're doing the cross-examination. And we're usually pretty successful with finding that, uh, getting a finding that the claim is not attached to the labor market. Yeah, and in my opinion, <laughs> so we're subpoenaing them, so they see those subpoenas going out. We have to copy our adversaries by law. And all of a sudden they realize, I turned in this sheet with, you know, it says always says CVS Rite Aid, Home Depot, you know, whatever's on the neighborhood on the little courthouse. Those are the classes, yes. And <laughs> they turn in the sheet, and then they see subpoenas going out, or they use a vendor, and the vendor's sending out these letters. And all of a sudden, it's an attack of the truths. Right. And I think it's important just to, you know, mention this. Attachment is never going to win the case. It will just terminate benefits for a short period of time. And this is very tactical. We're doing this to set up the case for a Section 32 lump sum dismissal, mm-hmm. which is, you know, when I fall asleep at night in my bed, I think about Section 32s. <laughs> when I wake I up, I think that. about Section 32s. So that's really, we're just trying to push a pain point. We're really trying to make them uncomfortable so we can get this case set up for a lump sum dismissal. Right. Because they're, they're sitting home fat, happy, watching Judge Judy, drinking beer in their underwear all along. 
we're just trying to interrupt that, yes. make them come to court, make something happen so we can get a 30 And we've actually seen something that because after that first hearing, when the matter is set for labor market attachment, we usually get uh, demands from the adversaries, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the claimant knows that he doesn't want to look for work. He's yeah. enjoying staying at home. <laughs> the, the, the gig is up. <laughs> yes, the gig is up. Exactly. They got it to me. Yeah. So now he better work in collecting a lump sum money and then just figure out what he's going to do after that. So, so one other thing to note, I think importantly, uh, the places that these claimants are claiming to be looking for work actually have to be hiring somebody. Sure. Yes, yeah. important. You know, many mm -hmm. times we'll get, oh, yes, we went to, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so to look for work. And you ask them, were they looking? They have a help wanted ad out. Uh, no. Right. Well, then how does that count toward? actually looking for a job that wasn't hiring. It's not a job mm -hmm. if they're not hiring. Exactly. Yeah. And you also mentioned that in some of the, now you go to Manans and you go to Binghamton. Uh, I've covered upstate, yeah. Yeah, and, and you've told us that up there, um, the judges are saying basically if they're still, if they're not terminated. Yeah. Well, yeah, so there have been some recent, you know, board panel decisions from 2015. They haven't caught on everywhere, hasn't, you know, just beginning to get some traction in some jurisdictions. Um, and basically what they're saying is, if the claimant is still employed, hasn't been officially terminated from their employer, then they're considered to be attached to the labor market. So in that case, you know, there's no requirement that they go out looking for new jobs because they're technically still employed by their employer. Right. You know, so and that whole argument, that. you know, of labor market attachment comes into question then. Right. Well, are they or aren't they? Because they might just be 50% disabled and can't go back to that job that they have at the employer. Right. So that doesn't make them attached to the labor markets. Right. You should exactly. still challenge that, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. They have to be looking for jobs within their restrictions. The employer may not have jobs within their restrictions. Right. So they have to go out and find those jobs in order to remain attached to the labor market. Yeah. And the carers should continuously make these arguments because... Like Rachel said, they're board panel decisions. American Axel still controls. They have right. to meet all of these requirements, yes. and we still should be challenging that, absolutely. even though some of the judges are trying to like use it as an escape, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right, um, so let's talk about one other thing. Uh, we definitely have seen uh, claimants that go to the, the state uh, vocational services. Uh, some of our clients have used private services. Mm -hmm. We're familiar with CBI uh, or Catalyst, which will find a job. Um, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are places available for many claimants, some through the state, some through private agency. Many, you know, don't want to go through the private agencies. They just kind of go to the state. They show up for the interview. They fill out some paperwork, and they put little check marks and some things or other, watch, you know, an hour video, and then they go home. This is the Workforce One uh, sort yeah. of shenanigan that we've observed. And then they, they put that on their, you know, C5, 2588. Uh, form and they say, okay, we've looked for work and nobody ever called me. They didn't follow up. They didn't show any efforts to reach back out. You know, and that's pretty much it. And they, they think that's sufficient. Uh, then there are other places that are, I think, a little bit more um, yield better results, which are the private agencies like CBI, like um, Catalyst. Catalyst. Thank you. <laughs> Forgot the name for a moment. Uh, that actually. You know, it's like a work placement agency. They go out, they find you jobs that you can do within your restrictions, some from home, some from, you know, locations uh, specific to, you know, your location, which, by the way, should be important to know that it should be within the geographical location of the claimant. Oh, right. Yes. You had the case where mm -hmm. the person lived in Georgia 
they were finding them jobs in Florida. Yes, that's my yes. That, that, you know, going across state lines for a job may not necessarily work in right, many right. places. Well, the catalyst, I mean, that's something anybody could do. It's a, it's a telemarketing job, basically. If you, they even send you the phone, I think. Yeah, you don't yes. have to do anything. Mm-hmm. You sit home, they send you a headset, they send you a list, you log into the computer, and you click a button and it dials for you. You, have, you don't have to do anything, really. Yeah. Just speak. Anyone can do that job. Well, we would expect them to. <laughs> uh, and one other little comment. Uh, the claimant does have to go to work first of all, and they have to register. If they have to go and register a resume, they've got to do all these things. Um, we've actually subpoenaed Workforce One, this office, yes. this, mm-hmm. to see if the people are actually showing up and you know discover, hey, they're checking in, but they're not really doing any of the following. Right. So uh, that's just a thought. All right, uh, those are sort of all of our prepared remarks. It's time for questions. Now, I'm going to go over to the computer. I hope there are some questions. If not, please type as fast as you possibly can. Uh, give me one sec to come Speed over here. skills are coming into use now. All right. Okay, so Janet asks a question. If the carrier does not receive a medical report to substantiate for lost time, do we have to pay the claimant within the 30 days from the receipt of the claim? Are we in a penalty situation if we do not pay within 30 days because we do not have evidence of lost time? Thanks. That's from Janet. Well, let's answer that exactly because I think this is a question that's absolutely about the, uh, the uh, payer Care compliance. compliance and they... this is the problem that payer compliance creates for our clients, which is under the payer compliance rules, if you have notice of an injury, you're supposed to just start paying. You don't know if they're actually temporarily totally disabled or not. Right. So the the guidance from the board has been just start issuing the $150 a week, which is the state minimum. So that's what the board is telling us. Now, the threats from the board have been that if you fail to do it, there's a $50 penalty, and then there's a $1,000 penalty, mm-hmm. which is, you know, not nothing. So, yeah, there is actually a penalty situation. But the challenge is, and I think what Janet is alluding to here, is the idea of what if they never produced medical, right? So they've never substantiated it. You're not going to get a penalty if they've never been able to substantiate it. They just started missing time from work. Again, this puts employers in a terrible situation where somebody's missing from work. We don't know why exactly, or they claim they were injured at work, but they're not. There's no medical. We can't get any medical, and now we're supposed to just start paying. So right. this is one of the challenges in this jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see if we have any other questions. And you know, the carrier could file an RFA too at that point if you know a long time's going by and the claimant's not submitting medicals, right? Well, I love that idea, except for how long does it take a board the board to list? That's an true. RFA a couple it? months. I mean, the yes. answer is. Uh, you know, it's all over the place. It's spotty. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it doesn't even seem to me, I mean, our practice is half the state. It's basically Albany on south. We're going to 15 hearing points. And it doesn't seem to be like Brooklyn is slower than Albany or, oh, no. or it's just it's slow and unpredictable everywhere. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing we've discovered is with RFAs, and particularly when we're trying to get a Section 32 settlement put on the record, is just to call the board every day. Oh, yes. paralegal, pick up the phone and say, when are you listening? When are you listening? When are you listening? He's one of our clients, Andy, you know, Andy. Mm-hmm. He, he calls him like every single day to get his Section 32 listed yes. because it is very unpredictable. So it's not... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we want to give practical advice. We want to tell people, hey, this is the truth about how it's actually working in this state. Uh, but it is a frustrating jurisdiction because there doesn't seem to be like, a lot of predictability as to when those RFAs will actually get listed. All right, either we did a great job or this isn't an exciting topic. That's the only <laughs> question we got today. Uh, all right, so if you have any more questions, uh, please, Tashia to my right, uh, Rachel to my far right, you're far left. 
their contact information is on the screen. Please feel free to send them any emails, uh, any questions. If they just didn't come through because of a computer glitch, uh, please send them to us via email. Next month, our topic is the New York Medical Treatment Guidelines. We're going to be talking uh, with uh, Declan Gourley and Janet from this office, and we're going to be presenting some ideas about how to, uh, you know, reduce medical costs using the medical treatment guidelines. Mm -hmm. um, let me just make sure this is up on the screen because now I realize I didn't share the screen. Uh, and with that, we're out. Thank you, everybody, for participating today. Have a great day.